Welcome to episode 1915 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing well. How are you? I don't know why I felt like I needed to emphasize the Ben, <laughs> but I did. Yep. And here we are. I'm doing well. We uh, we we have a day off of, well, games anyway, mm-hmm. and uh, here we are. Getting ready yeah. to talk about some division series. What division series they are. Indeed. Yes. Days off are perfect for previewing. Pe- yeah. Preview time. Thank we goodness. can actually do something without it feeling immediately obsolete as long as everyone listens immediately after we post the episode. So we did our wild card recap last time, and now we will do our division series preview. And then at some point later in the week, there will be a third episode about something or other. So something. there was one question we got from a listener in response to our conversation and to the Eargate controversy in Mets Padres Game 3 on Sunday. Daniel said, you're probably getting a ton of emails about this question. Many probably also prefaced that you're probably getting a ton of emails about this question. But without getting into the ear discourse, what would happen if a starting pitcher who's been absolutely dealing in a playoff game is found to have been using sticky stuff late in the game with a big lead? Does the umpire have the power to call a forfeit to stop the game and have it replayed the next day? Presumably the other team could play the game under protest, but could that come to anything? I'm guessing the answer is no, but that seems incredibly unsatisfying and potentially damaging to the sport if this happened in, say, Game 7 of the World Series, to take the most dramatic example. And... That's right, I think, right? There's no recourse. I mean, you can eject the pitcher, you can suspend and fine the pitcher, but you can't do a do-over. Right. (laughs) You can't say, okay, let's start this thing over. So that would be quite a scandal if Joe Musgrove had been found to have been using something. I guess it would have been satisfying to some degree for Mets fans to see him kicked out of the game. And if the Mets had lost anyway, then they could have consoled themselves over the long winter with the thought that at least we were on the level and he was cheating. But that would be a big issue for the sport, I suppose, if if it were confirmed that a pitcher were cheating in a big game like that. But there's really no way to do anything about it, right? I mean, it's just the whole debate about the Astros and the cheating scandal and people saying that Rob Manfred should vacate the title or give it to someone else. And that just doesn't really happen in this sport, in this league. Right. And you don't even have the recourse of protesting anymore. As J.J. Cooper of Baseball America pointed out, there aren't protests in baseball any longer. Hmm. They've been they've been done away with, Ben. Can't. Yeah protest games at all anymore yeah. so you can still silently protest it just you can't sure. officially protest can't officially protest <laughs> yeah although like you know did officially protesting ever really satisfy anyone like <laughs> did it rarely. ever yeah really do much of anything at all so i guess i mean he would have been ejected from that game right yeah you get him out of the game it's something but and if they had still held on to win the padres i imagine he would have been ineligible for further postseason play just based on how the sticky stuff stuff is Mm -hmm. meant to go right Maybe. Probably. Probably. I would think. Yeah. I would think because you can level a suspension against 
practitioners of sicky stuff mm-hmm. but yeah i think one of the one of the things that is really tricky is that we don't have a ton of great in the moment mechanisms for punishing wrongdoing apart from ejection. And so, you know, this is part of why it's important for the rules to be enforced in such a way and designed in such a way that they serve as a true deterrent to bad acts because once it's done, like your your range of options are limited absent suspension fine or you know vacation of wins and titles and such and, and like vacating not like going mm-hmm. on vacation the wins right. can't go on vacation they're inanimate so mm-hmm. yeah yes and again, I, I think some people thought it was kind of a ticky-tack move to to challenge to have him inspected. I don't think so, really. I mean, the fact that it was fruitless, that nothing was found, in retrospect, it, it makes you look even more impotent in a sense because it's like, oh, wow, we thought he was cheating because right. we were so bad against him and that it turned out that he wasn't, or at least if he was, we couldn't prove it and we just couldn't hit him anyway. And then he stayed in the game and just kept dominating. So it didn't help them, but you might as well try, I guess, when a guy is totally shutting you down like that. Maybe there's nothing to lose other than what you were going to lose anyway. And again, I don't think there was any smoking gun here, really, or shiny ears. There were definitely shiny ears, but I don't know if the shiny ears were a smoking gun. And really, the spin rate jumps, like his velocity was up a bit too. And once you factor in that, you know, velocity and spin rate are correlated, so you would expect one to increase if the other increases. And as we noted with Luis Castillo, velocity tends to spike in the postseason a lot of the time. Pitchers are amped up and they're leaving it all on the field. And once you factor in the fact that he was throwing a little bit harder than usual, the spin rate jumps were not really that anomalous. So I don't think it's that fishy. And actually... He was just interviewed recently, and and he's talked about how he feels that the 2017 title that the Astros won, he was a member of that team, is tainted. And he said, I still don't feel great about wearing that ring around or telling people that I was a World Series champion on that team. I want one that feels earned and that was a true championship. So that's the goal. So if that's sincere, and who knows, but if it is, then you would think that that would be a reason for him not to cheat if he really does feel deeply about that title not having been fully legitimately earned and he wants one he can be proud of that's totally on the up and up, then you would think that would be a reason not to cheat. Again, I guess if you're a cheater, if you're labeling someone a cheater, then what they say about wanting to win an untainted title probably doesn't sway you that much. But anyway, if he had been caught, if someone else is caught, well, you're kind of out of luck. He's out of the game, but that's about it. Yeah, you know, I think that we unfortunately know that the sport is one that has a both past and present legacy of cheating. And so it's always going to make people's eyebrows go, eh? You know, yep. it's the sound your eyebrow makes when it goes up. Just the mm-hmm. one eyebrow, not both sure. of them. The Both eyebrows up is like, oh, wow, that was amazing. One eyebrow is like, mm, I'm paying attention <laughs> to you. So, you know, I understand fans, especially fans of teams that are, presently losing having suspicion around this stuff we've had cause for suspicion lately and i think that despite not really learning that lesson in the steroid era we're, we're trying to learn the lesson of like not being caught flat-footed right mm-hmm. and being on the look for stuff so that we bought it before you know you win a world series at least in some small part based on you know banging a trash can so <laughs> i understand fans having that instinct And, you know, not to knock the ESPN broadcast, like I think that that broadcast was fine in general, but like, 
I think that there's a general lack of understanding when it comes to how spin and velocity interact with one another and like what the real benefits of spin are and what is, you know, what is sort of the normal range of variance in a starter's spin on his pitches start to start, right? Like Mm -hmm. we just, I don't think that there's a, a, a really terrific understanding of that stuff. And so when you see what strikes you as a particularly shiny ear, you know, and you you are possessed of matte ears, right? Like totally right. matte finish on those ears. <laughs> and then you have the broadcast telling you that Musgrove's spin is up on all of his pitches and you have the context of there having been recent shenanigans in the sport. Recent shenanigans that involved the team that Joe Musgrove was on, right? Sure. Maybe you sit there and go, well, what's he, you know, what's going? And so I, I get it. But I think that we have to then interact with information after the fact that makes us have a fuller understanding of that moment. And that isn't to say that there aren't pitchers out there now. And perhaps Joe Musgrove, I don't know, who are doctoring the ball with stuff. But the shiny ear and the spin rates are not, I think, sufficient to discern that and to say that definitively, particularly when he had like an ear cavity search. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. David Cohn was on that broadcast and in theory he was the one that you would want to be in that situation because he is well equipped to talk about these topics and I think he's uh, quite a capable and competent and compelling broadcaster and you can tell on the air he's like looking at baseball savant you know like he has all these things at his fingertips and so he was pointing out that the spin rates were higher in what I heard and I may not have heard everything he said and I probably wasn't paying all that close attention to the commentary I don't know that he sounded the same cautionary note he noted that the spin rates were up. I don't know if he sort of dismissed how much they were up and whether the magnitude was significant, but generally I'm happy that he gets shine, no pun intended, no (laughs) pun intended on these broadcasts because he's very good and he obviously brings the ex-player perspective, but he's also just a pitching nerd and he's into the data and everything. So I do enjoy his work. Glad he's uh, on a national stage now. So We want to talk about these division series, which starts all four of them on Tuesday, and the start times are staggered, though there will be a little bit of overlap. So can I I pick can I pick a tiny bone? Sure. Mm -hmm. About the start times, a tiny bone, and then I'm going to let it go because I don't it doesn't I just tiny bone. What's with I'm going to sound like Jerry Seinfeld, like (laughs) what's with all the start times in the middle of the day for the Mariners and the Astros. I'm just saying, I know that everyone wants to watch the Yankees and I get everybody wants to watch the Dodgers. And I imagine that when game threes roll around, perhaps things get reshuffled a little bit and you get a a game that's later for the Mariners. And even if it isn't, it's a Saturday, you know? Mm -hmm. So, okay. But like both of their games the Mariners and the Astros, both of the games in that series are in the middle of the day in both of the media markets that Mm -hmm. root for those teams. And would it be so bad? I mean, it would be super irritating to me, but we don't have to base broadcast decisions based on my schedule because my schedule's weird. Would it kill him to have simultaneous games going so that people could watch stuff a little bit later in their market? Hmm. Would it kill him, Ben? Well... Or you could just... Make the Yankees, I don't know, happen in the middle of the day. Somebody I mean, has to be... play in the middle of the day, I guess. I guess. Yeah, it, it would make sense if you have a, a matchup between two teams that are not in the Eastern time zone, one of which is on Pacific time, that maybe those could go later in the day, all else being equal, ideally to please everyone except the broadcast 
partners and their ad revenue because they want the Yankees playing in primetime. So yeah. just no way around that. At least you have Padres Dodgers who are aligned with their time zone. So that's the late game. It goes Phillies Braves starts early and then Mariners Astros is in mid-afternoon Eastern, early afternoon Pacific. And then you have Guardians and Yankees and then you have Padres and Dodgers. So Phillies and Braves will overlap with Mariners-Astros unless the first game is extremely quick. And after that, you will probably get a little bit of overlap between Guardians-Yankees and Padres-Dodgers. So there will be some. In general, I do like not having as many games on at the same time, just so theoretically I could watch them all without doing a a multi-screen sort of setup. I mean, I like that too, but like, I'm just saying that since we don't yet have national holidays for the baseball playoffs, Mm -hmm. it just, it makes it difficult. And I I get that those teams that are in primetime are the teams that people want to watch. And I think that's fine, but maybe there should be like a, you know, an exemption for teams that have had playoff droughts longer than like nine years, because it, (laughs) it does, it does the Phillies dirty too and their fans Mm -hmm. have been waiting a long time so maybe just you know it's fine because i'm sure the weekend (laughs) none of this matters as much but like maybe you get a wait yeah a long time and then you get to watch your guys instead should be seattle's turn yeah i agree it should be (laughs) seattle's turn okay i've picked my (laughs) tiny bone i feel satisfied that it is picked clean is that the origin of that sure i i feel like i have you know picked it clean Cracked it open. Marrow's gone. Let's move Mm -hmm. on. All right. So first things first, the format. This is the analysis you're only going to get in Effectively (laughs) Wild. We can't predict everything that will transpire in these series. Although, again, I have read some previews, so I'm well-armed. I hopefully haven't spoiled myself, but I have spoiled myself when it comes to the format. And this is a best of five. Again, the wins do not have to be consecutive. You don't have to win by two or anything. You win any combination of three games. Any three. Any three. And you advance to the championship series. And I hate to break this to you, but the format for the championship series is different from the format for the wildcard round or the division series. They really don't make this easy on us, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Uh, so well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep it all straight, but I, I know. I'm going to try it, Ben. Well, we will constantly remind people. That's all we can do. So I know it's kind of confusing because the wild card round was best of three, and we told you that you have to win two games, whereas in the division series round, you can potentially play two more games. Two more. Five instead of three, and yet you only have to win one three. more. Yeah. yeah. Which I know. Go figure. It's just it's kind of a brain tease. Also, wins in the wildcard round don't count toward the three that we're talking about here. So if you're one of the teams that won a wildcard series and you won those two games, those are just wiped away. It's a clean slate. Oh, it's reset. They don't carry over. No, it's not cumulative. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that makes sense, though, because then like, you're putting the teams that got to buy at a real disadvantage if you already right. get to bring two wins with you. you know. Yeah, that would be unfair, but I, would I be felt unfair. that I, I needed to clarify because well, I yeah. understand that these things can be confusing. So again, they will play as few as three or as many, many as, as five. five games. Okay. First to three wins gets to advance. So, okay. This is uh, it's kind of a matchup between the wins and the win nots, I guess, in these series. It's obviously like the four best teams, probably the teams that got the buys and didn't have to play in the wild card. But 
Also, just historically speaking, it's a matchup between four teams that have won World Series recently and won pennants and had a lot of deep playoff runs against the four wildcard teams, which have not. Yeah. <laughs> None of these teams, I guess, since Cleveland won the pennant right in 2016, None of these teams, I mean, most of these teams haven't been here in ages, or half of them haven't, and the others just haven't really advanced very deep. So this really is just like familiarity versus the fresh faces. So you have your behemoths, you have your Yankees and your Dodgers and your defending champion Braves and the Astros who have been there every year, of course. And then you have your upstarts. You haven't seen you guys in a while. You have your Mariners, you have your Phillies, you have your Guardians and you have your Padres and the Padres and the Mariners. Never won a World Series. Guardians haven't won a World Series in ages and ages and ages. The Mariners have never made a World Series. So really, if you're someone who roots for the underdogs and roots for upsets, then I guess your allegiances are pretty clear here, assuming you don't have your own personal team represented here. You want the Rebels versus the Empire. (laughs) You want the, the wild card teams versus the teams that got the bye, basically. So a lot of interesting storylines and, and root forable teams in this round. Root forable. There are yeah. teams that are root forable. I mean, I think that, that that is all quite true. I just hope that they are I hope we we get some some real series, you know? I hope mm-hmm. that we have a lot of a series that go to four or five. Yeah. Because there are some obvious You know, all of these teams are good teams. Some are obviously better than others. But, like, all of these teams are are good teams and have things to recommend them. And also, there are some (laughs) what feel like real mismatches to be had in in these. And I worry about quick deaths, you know? Mm -hmm. I worry that we might be in for some quick quick action here. Because it could be over in as few as three games. Again, just as we noted. So I want to point out that I am not the only one sustaining this bit. Some of the emails we got <laughs> no. suggested that I am the one that is sustaining this bit. And I'd like to point out that this is a real Abbott and Costello kind of situation here. So. Yeah, I've become the instigator, if anything. So yeah, you, you were ready to let this die and let it rest. <laughs> Not me. Nope. So so there are some scheduling quirks to be aware of here. And there's a a difference from one league to the next in terms of off days, which is nice, I guess, in the sense that we won't have to have four games on on every day because that's staggered too. But also it does kind of change things from a competitive perspective. So. The AL has off days between games one and two, and then also between games two and three, Yeah, which helps you set up your starters, right? I mean, you don't have to worry about whether your games one and two starters can pitch games four and five, because they would both be on full rest at that point, whereas the NL doesn't have that extra off day, so... Their game one and two starters would then have to be on short rest if they went in games four and five, but also games three to five, no off days, right? Right. So you're going to have potentially exhausted bullpens by the time you get to a a game five if you do get to a game five, which which I like. Again, I, I like when the postseason schedule mirrors the regular season schedule a little more closely so that you don't have so many off days that you can just completely concentrate your innings right. in the hands of, say, three starters and three relievers. Like You do actually have to use your staff to some extent, the guys who got you there. But it does differ 
across series. Right. And another thing that differs is that the teams that are already at a disadvantage because they're not as good or were not as successful in the regular season, they are, at least in some cases, at an additional disadvantage because they just had to play a wild card round. Right. And other than the Padres, of course, they only had to play two games in that series, and so they had that day of rest on Sunday. But still, you have teams that are a little bit compromised, maybe, because they can't line up their rotations from the start, right? And, and right. in some cases, it's not that huge a deal, right? Like the Mariners, for instance, they didn't have to use Logan Gilbert in the wildcard round, right. so they can just use Logan Gilbert in yes. game one, and then things will line up okay for them from that point. So it's not terrible, but there are some cases at least where you can't line up your rotation the way that the overdogs, is that a term? I don't know. The favorites in this series, they've had all the time in the world to stack things up the way that they wanted to. Overdog sounds dystopian. That yeah. sounds like a like a mutant animal of some kind, something that has been modified in a lab to, you know, <laughs> cause to wreak havoc. We, although maybe that's a good way to describe the Dodgers and the yeah. <laughs> Astros and the Yankees and the Braves. Yeah, I think that it is going to affect some teams more dramatically than others, as you noted. Like on the one hand, you're going to continue to see teams like, say, Cleveland, which has an incredibly deep bullpen, probably be able to weather that stuff fairly well. But, you know, once you get past, well, let's see, they'll be able to to line up Bieber pretty quick, right? And mm-hmm. then they'll have uh, one Tristan McKenzie. And then I guess they're going to have to get excited about Savali. Right? Yeah, or Quantrill. Quantrill. Yeah. Oh, I like Cal Quantrill. You know, yeah. I do like Cal Quantrill. So, to step down from the top two, but yeah. yes. Yeah, I guess that right now they're they're lined up to have Quantrill throw the opener and then not be an opener, but throw game one. And then Bieber, McKenzie, and Savali will be what they opt for. I guess, man, you punch a mound one time, Zach, Zach <laughs> and then you're just <laughs> not in a division series rotation, presumably. The other consideration that sometimes people make a big deal about is teams on too much rest. Right. right? So you want some rest, but you want the Goldilocks zone right. We're of rest. We're perpetually trying to occupy the Goldilocks zone. <laughs> yeah. So the teams that had the bye, they've been sitting around for a while. Yeah. And in some cases, maybe that helps. Maybe yeah. you get extra treatment and you get extra rest and everyone's a bit banged up at this time of year. Yeah. So it could be good. There is just the supposition that it could also be bad because in baseball, other than, I suppose, the all-star break, teams are pretty much playing constantly. Right. And so it's a deviation from your routine to have four or five days off. So some people speculate that that could throw those teams off their game. Others say, no, it will help them. No one really knows. <laughs> Joshian did look into this in the most recent edition of his newsletter. And again, everything is small sample when it comes right. to playoff analysis. But he did find that teams playing on at least four days rest against opponents with less rest are 18 and 8 in their first game back over the sample that he looked at. So he concluded that the teams coming off a bye should be just fine. I generally agree. That is yeah. my 
intuition that if you're the Yankees or the Dodgers or the Braves or you know you don't fall apart just because you you had less right. than a week off you don't forget how to play baseball I think on the whole I would guess that it is more beneficial than harmful yes in addition to the fact that they didn't have to play those games and potentially have guys get tired and have guys get hurt and just rack up the odometers and the mileage and also not have certain players available when the series starts so I would say, if anything, it's an advantage, but if you call it a draw, I think that's fair too. So (laughs) those teams, look, they don't need any extra help, but they get some anyway. (laughs) They're already better and some of the other factors favor them too. Well, and that's directionally how we want these things to go, right? right. We want Mm -hmm. there to be strong incentive to try to win as many games as you possibly can to get this respite and be able to line up your rotation the way that you want to and give guys who might be dealing with nagging injuries a couple more days to get sorted. Like, I wish that we had, we found that it has like an incredibly dramatic effect, right? To get that extra rest. Like it's an extra however much in championship win probability added because I want it to be such that teams are like, I got to avoid the fate that the Mets suffered, right? We want Mm -hmm. our dudes to be able to have a couple of extra days. We want them to be able to rest like the Dodgers have. If that's the way that we are aligned directionally, we're doing stuff the right way, I think. Yep. All right. So of these series where it seems like there's a fairly clear favorite, at least based on betting odds and projections in each one. Yes. Is there one that you look at and think, this is the, the best odds of an upset happening in this oh, series. Oh, what a good way of formulating that. I've been thinking about that kind of all day as I have edited series previews. I'm going to say a thing that I am going to feel like I I might immediately regret. Are you ready for me <laughs> yes. to immediately regret something? Mm-hmm. Is it the Dodgers versus the Padres, Ben? Ooh, okay. Make the case. A spicy take. I don't <laughs> know how much conviction I have in this spicy take of mine. Well, I guess that the way that I would make my spicy case is <laughs> I don't have any <laughs> conviction in this idea. What if Juan Soto just like goes absolutely bonkers and Manny Machado just goes absolutely bonkers and then... Joe Musgrove and his shiny, shiny ears go bonkers, and then they upset them. And Mm -hmm. Darvish does Darvish stuff, and we, oh, I guess we have to deal with Mike Clevenger. The real problem, the real problem for my, that gets in the way of my spicy take is that at least as we have it lined up right now, Joe Musgrove wouldn't throw until game four. Right. And that's, you know, it's not the best. Although, although, Ben, like what what happens if, you know, they get through and they're facing an elimination? Do they bring him back on short rest? It would be a pretty mm. short rest, though. Yeah, it would. It would be very short rest. So I don't have conviction in my spicy take. In fact, if you look at the... <laughs> I'm taking it all back, Ben. If you look at our Zips postseason game-by-game odds, which have now been updated to reflect the division series, I think that the Dodgers, in fact, have the greatest advantage of any team. <laughs> well, that's okay. You can differ from the odds. I don't it's, think I actually do, though. It's I think okay that... not to have conviction. I, I don't have conviction in any of the underdogs winning. That's why so, they're underdogs, the, right? The path, but... the path here is that actually... The Dodgers starters are quite tired. Actually, 
like Clayton Kershaw has a bad game. Actually, Darvish twirls a gem, which isn't something that requires a lot of flexing to believe. Actually, the heart of that Padres order just really takes it to him. I still think they're going to lose, though, so I don't think I have good <laughs> conviction in that. Is it? We're just going to go through each of these one by one now. Yeah. Our listeners are like, Meg, have you ever considered outlining your thoughts before you come on the podcast? And to that, I say, yeah, but not today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even in this series, I, I think both Pakoda and Zips say it's 60-40 yeah. in favor of the Dodgers. So 60-40, yeah. like, you know, it wouldn't be surprising really at all if the, the 40 pays off in the series it would be semi-surprising again they're the underdogs but really it's not that remote a chance so I don't think you have to think that hard to come up with a scenario where it works because as we've talked about like yeah the Dodgers are a total juggernaut but they're a little less intimidating than you would expect a 111 win team to be just because of some absences right and you know like Tyler Anderson has been great this year. I yeah. think he's the, the most valuable pitcher on the Dodgers by Fangraphs War, which surprised me. But yeah. also, like, you know, he's Tyler Anderson. Like, before he got to the Dodgers, we wouldn't have thought that much of facing Tyler Anderson in the playoffs. Of course, you know, some people get to the Dodgers and then they're different guys. But still, you have Tyler Anderson. You have Heaney in the mix, maybe in the bullpen. You have Tony Gonsolin, who's back, but he missed a lot of time, and it's not clear that he's totally 100%. Dustin May, same deal, right? right. Like, yeah. maybe not completely healthy. And then Blake Trinan, again, like, he hasn't pitched in a while, and, and he may pitch, but it sounds like even if he does pitch, he probably won't be able to go on back-to-back days, and maybe right. he won't be as dominant as he used to be. And then there are the other absences, the guys that they haven't had for a long time of like Daniel Hudson or yeah. or Walker Bueller, obviously. Yeah. Like it's a different team with those guys. And and then you have Craig Kimbrell, who has been deposed as closer. Right. But is still around seemingly. We're recording on Monday afternoon, so we haven't seen official rosters, rosters announced yet. yet That's but right. imagines he will be in the mix, maybe in lower leverage and unless Dave Robertson comes to temptation. So they still have a lot of guys who are really good. They still have like Evan Phillips, not a huge name, but really good he's season. He's really good. Yeah. You know? And like Alex Vesia, who again, like he's been really good too. So they haven't had as big names in his long track records, but the Dodgers just, they always have guys who are effective. It's just that maybe you're not as scared as, say, other teams would be of other top of the rotations just because Kershaw is still really great, but maybe not as likely to go as deep into games and you just never know. And and Arias has been excellent too. The peripherals maybe not quite as good as the surface stats. So yeah. they're just they're missing some dominant guys and some pretty important players. So they they feel somewhat vulnerable they don't feel invulnerable right but they feel vulnerable <laughs> in like dodgers adjusted terms yeah exactly right so yeah. they should still win the series and and they, they have should. certainly cleaned the padres clocks like over yeah, the past really few years have. you know like it's we've, we've all been waiting for the padres dodgers rivalry and it just has not really materialized because the dodgers just keep reasserting themselves as the big boys in this division and they beat the padres handily in the season series as they have pretty much every year and last time they met in the playoffs they swept them so 
I don't know if the Padres have any kind of like little brother syndrome heading into this or whether they just want to beat the big boys. Who knows? But the point is that the Dodgers, even as the Padres have become quite a good team, the Dodgers are still just like leaps and bounds, heads and shoulders above them. Yeah. Now I feel... Silly for having even brought it up. And no, I mean, I, I, I don't you feel like you admonished a, an me. Underdog. No, yeah, to be clear, I don't feel like you were like, oh, Meg, you don't. Any answer would have been reasonable, yeah. roughly equally well, reasonable, I think. What would it, would it have been? <laughs> I mean, because, like, isn't there a scenario where <sighs> I just don't want to think that it's only going to be the Yankees and the Astros and the Dodgers and the Braves, but I think it might be all of those teams i mean maybe garrett odds are it will not be all of them right even though each of them individually is favored the odds are in favor of of some upset Upset, somewhere yeah i mean like if so for instance like you 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 go through the yankees and you're like okay so the yankees are gonna have a fully rested garrett cole on the mound and you're like oh garrett cole for garrett cole has been kind of vulnerable what's one of the things that he's been most vulnerable to this year ben it's the home run gonna answer Mm -hmm. for you guess what team doesn't hit very many of those the (laughs) guardians like they did hit them when they needed them as we noted in the wild card recap but like not a team that's gonna thump so then you're like all right i guess you gotta string stuff together against the yankees and Cal Quantrill has to keep it together. And then you go to the next game and you're like, well, Nestor Cortez is really, really good. Shane Bieber's good, but he's not what he once was. So uh, do you feel really good about that? I don't know. And then you have Severino, who is lo- who looked really good in the recent tune-up, but Tristan McKenzie's excellent. So it's just like, you know, you can try to talk yourself into stuff. I'm not even going to touch the Mariners Astros. <laughs> We'll touch it in a moment, but <laughs> you don't have to to pick them. I know then, you could you could yeah. recuse yourself, and then, yeah, I'll recuse myself. And then, and no, I'll I'll take a stand because like I I have a lot of experience being honest about the shortcomings of the Mariners. This is one right. of the the good things about being a Mariners fan is that you can. You know, you you have no choice but to grapple with reality. But yeah, and then you look at like you look at Philly's Braves, and they get to they get to have Max Fried. Now they don't get as much Spencer Strider as they wanted, but they're gonna have a lot of Spencer Strider for a long time. I guess we should mention yep. that they extended Spencer Strider. Yes, literally between when we last talked about how the Braves have extended <laughs> no. all of their position players, and the only guy they haven't really done is Strider, and then I guess yeah. Freed, who was under team control anyway. It's right. not like they needed they... to do this. Imminently, but no, then they but were they like, did. yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> Got to catch them all. So it's uh, six years, 75 million with uh, an option for 20 and a buyout for 2029. Right. But for $22 yeah. million dollars and a $5 right. million dollar buyout. Yeah. No. Yes. So it keeps him under team control even longer than he would have been anyway. So yep. yeah, they're just going to keep this group together forever, seemingly. But yeah. they still don't know about his availability, or at least we don't know about his availability Correct. for the series. It, it sounds like he's probably going to pitch it's just it's not clear in what capacity yes whether he will be kind of a, an opener piggyback with someone or he could pitch in relief because he's done that or maybe he will just be able to go and and we'll yeah. see but that's a it's a pretty big factor for this series just because it's a it's a step down yeah. from strider to say jake odorizzi right yeah Strider was one of the best pitchers in baseball right. once he was moved to the rotation. So Yeah, I mean, like, Odorizzi is, is fine. Like, it's fine, but it's mm-hmm. not Spencer Strider. So Yeah. Oh. So I would pick the Guardians as the most likely upset team. 
again, I'm not saying that like the odds are wrong and that they should actually be favored or anything. I'm just no. saying Yankees, uh, they feel vulnerable yeah. to me, right? Like if you look at their second half, <laughs> they were not that impressive. They finished somewhat strong, right? Not as strong as they started, but they finished strong enough to avert disaster, which it looked like they were heading toward during their prolonged slump. So they kind of righted the ship. They also have some injuries and are shorthanded in some ways. And a lot of those are pitchers, but also DJ LeMayhew doesn't seem like he's his full healthy self, as Brian Cashman even acknowledged. And he maybe even in a bench role or a part-time role, and they are getting Carpenter back. Yes. Of course, he hasn't played in, in big league games in so long that it's hard to know exactly what you're getting in yeah. him, but he was amazing when he was healthy and playing for them. So that could be a bit of a boost, but it's still kind of a top-heavy team, Yeah, definitely a top-heavy lineup, which I guess is inevitable when the top is Aaron Judge, but also just, <laughs> you know, below Aaron Judge, there's not as much. It's not a it's not a slight fall-off. Well, yeah, there's not as much below him because he is so tall. Exactly. It's so, like there's less down below because he's yeah, tall. They still hit a lot of homers as a team, not yes. just Judge, but... Really, like anyone you could slot in behind Judge, I, I guess Rizzo would maybe be the, the best batter at this point. It's a big, steep drop-off, yeah. and, and there are going to be some spots in that lineup that you don't feel that great about, which obviously is even more true for Cleveland. But because the Yankees have really kind of reshuffled their bullpen on the fly, and again, there's some kind of questionable guys there, so Chapman has just deserted seemingly he's he's AWOL and the Yankees probably aren't all that broken up about it because he wasn't actually pitching well this year so (laughs) Brian Cashman's frankness about Chapman just not showing up for the workout he has been frank about players in the past it's one of the things I enjoy about (laughs) Brian Cashman is that he will sort of speak his mind but also easier to speak your mind when the guy you're talking about is like not someone who would have been a shoe in for the roster anyway, which is why he walked apparently because they would not guarantee him that he could be on the roster. So he's he's not the oldest Chapman that people think of as the the flame throwing closer. So, and obviously, like the Yankees were quite happy to have him despite any off the field issues when he was pitching well. So he won't be here. And then it sounds like Clay Holmes will be, but again, like he's had cortisone shots. He's yeah. had various ailments he was totally unhittable in the first half and then not nearly so much in the second half so you have a little bit of a closer question and then they've lost a lot of players over the course of the season chad green and michael king long gone and like ron marinaccio and yeah wandy peralta who i think is available but was right. recently injured yes so you look at the full season bullpen stats and and they're pretty impressive and and compare fairly favorably to Cleveland's, even though the Guardians have a great bullpen too, but it's kind of a different mix. And yeah, you have Loisaga who has come on and, and looked more like his last season self. And then you have Lutrovino acquired at the deadline, who's been great for the Yankees. Yeah. And you have Scott Efros, who, who they got from the Cubs, who's been good. And and some other serviceable guys in the mix too. And Lutke and, and Clark Schmidt is a multi-inning guy. So they still have arms, but it's not quite as intimidating as, say, the the seventh to ninth that other teams are running out there now. It's not quite as intimidating as, like, 
Pete Chapman and, and Chad Green and, you know, Zach Britton or whoever they've right. had in the back of the bullpen in recent seasons. So they seem a little more vulnerable. And Cole is very good, but also kind of shaky, kind of inconsistent at times. And Mr. Cortez, yeah, Cortez is really good. And then Severino, again, like missed much of the year, right. looked good lately. So just just a lot of like, I don't know, like yeah. this, this could go well. They should win, but it would not shock me at all if they did not. So it's more about the Yankees' vulnerabilities than, I guess, the Guardians being way better than everyone thinks they are that they played for much of the season. But again, I do think the playoff format favors them to some extent just because you can concentrate the innings with that great bullpen, right. with uh, the top couple of starters who were excellent. And if you think there's anything to the idea that maybe there's a slight boost to contact hitting in the playoffs, even though you would rather have a more all-or-nothing lineup that hits for a lot of power, which is kind of confusing, put that all together with the fact that the midges have emerged from Lake Erie. And I'm just saying, I could see it happen. I mean, yeah, I could see I could see it happen. I could see it happening with any of these of course, yeah. series. Like how clearly I can see it, like mm-hmm. how distinct the people involved are, kind of varies series to series. But yeah, I could see it. Do you want to talk about Mariners Astro? Should we just get it out of the way? Yeah, let's do it. So the Mariners are going to play. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just generally not been a great thing for the Mariners. No, it hasn't been their favorite. I don't (laughs) think that it has been the preference of the Mariners to play the Astros, particularly in Houston. It seems to have been not nice for them. They will, you know, as you noted, get to start Logan Gilbert in game one and then go to Castillo. So that's nice. We get to do Robbie Ray to Electric Boogaloo, I guess. (laughs) So that's terrifying and I am not looking forward to it. And then if there is a necessity for game four, we go to George Kirby. Relief ace, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. I guess you could go back to Gilbert again if you wanted to. But that's a conversation we had a couple weeks ago. Like, what do you do? Which of those guys do you choose? It's kind of tough. And and you can use the other one in the bullpen as they did with Kirby in the wild card round. Right. And, you know, if you're going five games, do you start Kirby in four and then you because you want to hold on to Gilbert to go in game five against Verlander again. I don't know. I'm -hmm. glad that they will get to play a game at least at home. That's good. You know, Mm -hmm. that seems like a good thing. But I just, I somehow feel like we didn't talk enough and I know we have talked about it and I'm doing that annoying thing where I'm like, we didn't talk about it and then we totally did. But we maybe haven't talked enough about just how good the Houston lineup is. Like, it's really... Very good. It's really yep. very, very good. <sighs> you know? <laughs> Sounds like you're not looking forward to your team facing it. Yeah. Especially the top five or six or so. Yeah. It's, it doesn't let up. You know, it's really something. <sighs> I'm just like, you know, you, you ever look at the leaderboards at Fangraphs and go, crap. It's <laughs> not going to go particularly well for them. I mean, it's really... Something for a guy who played 77 of his games at DH and 56 of them at left field to be able to rack up almost seven wins. Yeah. Like, you have to be a really good hitter to do that. You have to generate a tremendous amount of value on offense because you are dealing with the DH penalty and your primary fielding position being one that 
has a, a you know an, a positional adjustment that isn't akin to DH, but is still like kind of intense. It's not like Jordan Alvarez is playing second base. Although Houston, try something new, you know, <laughs> like embrace change in this season that is fall and uh, try something new out. But no, he's just he's a one eighty five WRC plus Ben. Good mm-hmm. God, yeah. There are some outs in that lineup. Sure, or at there least are some players you don't feel so bad about facing, yeah. right? Guriel at this stage yeah. or Jeremy Pena later in the season, yeah. right? It, he had sort of an extended slump. Maybe he's Shaz McCormick yeah. isn't like lighting the world on fire. Martin Maldonado isn't right. very if he's good, in the lineup then but seems to hit Seattle well just to make everybody sad. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the bottom of the lineup, it's it's vulnerable. Yeah. So there's that, but it is really like you run in the gauntlet there. Yeah. Altuve really... and, and Alvarez and Bregman and Tucker. Yeah, Tucker. Those guys are tough. <laughs> they're yeah. tough. They're really they're really very <laughs> tough. So it feels like so many of Martin Maldonado's hits came against the Mariners this year. I know they didn't all come against the Mariners, but it does feel like a lot of them came against the Mariners. So I worry about that. And then, you know, Houston's pitching is like surprisingly very good. Mm-hmm. Not surprisingly, but it's surprising that anyone who's actually older than me could be as good as Justin Verlander has been this year. But he sure has been really, really very good. Yeah, I think the longer the series goes and the fewer off days there are, probably the more it benefits the Astros just because they have such a, a deep staff. And they really can run out just for right. guys, at least, you would yeah. not want to face in the rotation. And then the bullpen's not bad either. So. Right. And then whoever you decide you don't want in the rotation, you're like, oh, would you like a very good Luis Garcia to just right. exist in the bullpen? Have that. Here you yeah. go. You have yep. a very good Luis Garcia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a discouraging prospect. It looks like uh, Maldonado didn't hit the Mariners that well this year, from what I can tell. I mean, he didn't hit anyone well, Ben. No, but even by Martin Maldonado standards, I guess you just uh, maybe you just happened to see. I saw a lot of of his hits against them. I think that I saw him maybe snap a long hitless streak against Seattle Mm. at a time when it would have been really useful for the Mariners to pick up some games against Houston. But Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not saying it's science. I'm just saying it's how it felt. Yeah. So yeah. there's that. And then, you know, you think about things on the Mariners side of the ledger from a hitting perspective, and they have some guys, but they also have their own share of outs that feel like they're stacked at the bottom of the lineup, right? Like once yes. you get past Hanniger, it starts to feel pretty dicey. And, you know, Mitch is kind of come and go sometimes. So it's, uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. But then, you know, the bullpen's good, so that's... That's good. Yeah, I would not be as afraid of Robbie Ray against the Astros as I was against the Blue Jays, probably just because they were so heavily right-handed. Yeah. But. But. (laughs) Yeah. But. (laughs) Right. Maybe it'll be fine, Ben. It might be fine. Maybe it'll be fine. Maybe what'll happen is that they will get, they being the Mariners, will get some surprising production from the, the bottom of their order and their big boppers will bop and uh luis castillo will throw another game like he did and logan gilbert will dazzle and the bullpen will hold on and then i will feel silly for not having applied for an alcs credential like who could say (laughs) that could Mm -hmm. happen it's not likely or it's not the most likely thing but it, it could happen and that sure would be fun for everyone what if 
Cal Raleigh hits another big home run against the Astros. Do they have to build a statue to him this year? Or do they wait? You know, like do they do they go with something like really straight down the middle? It's Cal in in a like oh I did it, or do they go like abstract and like they do Cal Raleigh's face on like you know one of those digging right. construction machines that they're always trying to sell us on MLB TV because we have like big equipment needs. I <laughs> yes. don't know. You know, like they there's like there's the literal big dumper that's Cal, but then there's like the figurative big dumper that is one of those but with his face on it. Mhm. It did seem like a year or two ago that the Astros were going to go away eventually. Like it it seemed like maybe yeah. the window was kind of closing, it like guys like were getting older. Cole was leaving, Springer was leaving, you know, and it seemed like maybe Carlos Correa was leaving. Uh, yeah, exactly, right? And somehow <laughs> they just seemed to keep being as good as they ever have, if not better. And they have Alvarez and Tucker, who are still just 25, and Pena just turned 25, I believe. And then they also, in the rotation, Verlander, of course, is ancient, though you would never know it from watching him pitch. But everyone else in that rotation is still sub-30. And obviously, like they still have a knack for player development and pitcher development. So suddenly it doesn't seem like the Astros are going to go away anytime soon. So they just kind of powered through it and let those core components of their winning teams walk and replace them often with internal replacements. And they're still amazing. (laughs) They don't even have Michael Brantley, right? He's hurt. Imagine what it looks like. I guess maybe you don't have Trey Mancini if you have Michael Brantley. But yeah, you just can't seem to stop the Astros either. They've almost become the Dodgers of the AL in a way. It's not quite as sustained success, but in the sense that you just always expect them to be there in the playoffs and maybe the cast changes a little bit, but there's some familiar faces where it's just like, yep, this is a consistent theme and storyline running through every October. You're always going to get the Dodgers. You're always going to get the Astros. We've seen these guys many times before. And when they lose someone, they just work someone else in and they don't miss a beat. (sighs) Yeah, that's true, Ben. That's a true thing about the Houston Astros. It's just continues to be a true thing you can't even enjoy the fact that their farm system is ranked 28th by our metrics because seattle's is 29th (laughs) right yeah and they seem to have a knack for getting more out of players than Uh, than people would expect and even like going into next season because the mariners are ascendant right And, and they had their season last year where they played a bit over their heads and they contended but they weren't really that great yet and then this season they weren't that much better record wise they were just good enough but they were better in an underlying sense and they're clearly on the way up and they worked in all these new great guys and there's a bright future for the franchise i think and yet even so like what year would you project the mariners as the favorites in the aos like Going into next season, obviously we don't know what will happen over the winter, but going into next season, would you say the Mariners are favored to win that division? I probably would not. No. And just projecting beyond that, it who knows? The error bars get pretty big the further we look into the distance. But you have like Framber Valdez and Jose Urquidy and Christian Javier and Luis Garcia, like all these guys who in many cases were not looked on as potential ace types necessarily, right. but 
they've turned into that, at least in Valdez's case, and, and the others are really solid starters too. So even if Justin Verlander is not literally ageless, <laughs> and at some point he does age, still you have a pretty solid foundation behind him to the point that they were like trading starting pitching, right? They traded Jake Odorizzi, right? They at at the deadline. They're like, eh, you know, we, <laughs> we don't, don't need, really need this we guy. We don't need a know? perfectly good Jake Odorizzi. Yeah. Defending champions and, and one of the other best teams in baseball, Atlanta Braves, you can have Jake Odorizzi. Yeah. yeah he's, uh, you know, kind of expendable for us just because we have this wealth of starting pitching. So that was a, kind of a flex. Obviously, <laughs> they got something back for Odorizzi. They got Will Smith back, but still. Right. I guess, like, if you want to play that game, the thing that would be in, say, Seattle's favor isn't really even that big of an advantage because they don't have a lot of payroll committed next year either. So, like, Seattle right now, and this is before we have integrated MLB Trade Rumors arbitration estimates, which got released today and should find their way to the Fangraphs roster resource payroll pages in the next week or so. So stay tuned for that, everyone. So this number will go up for both teams once those estimates are in. But right now, we at Fangraphs estimate they being the Mariners luxury tax payroll to be $126 million for next season. Now, that involves some money coming off the books because Carlos Santana is a free agent, but fine. And Matt Boyd is a free agent, but fine. And Chris Flexen has a vesting option, which I think will have vested. So he's sticking around. And then you have some some potential losses that are more significant, mostly Mitch Haniger, right? And then you have some bullpen guys. So, and then they have a they will have arbitration raises for guys like, say, Paul Seawald and Diego Castillo and Dylan Moore, but you know, you're talking about relievers and like 40-man bench pieces. So they have money to spend and have locked up key pieces of their existing core, right? Because Castillo is now under a contract extension and Julio is and, you know, Robbie Ray and his inability to get Brian Andrews out is sitting there and J.P. Crawford is coming back. But then you look at Houston and granted, they have some guys that they'll have to replace because Michael Brantley is a free agent. I imagine they will let him walk given the injury stuff. And Guriel is gone and Christian Vasquez and like Jason Castro. But these are like not it's fine. And then you look at the bottom and their pay luxury payroll number is 123 million. So it isn't even as if Houston is in a spot where they have this like massive payroll that they're going to have to run next year relative to Seattle. They will have to make some additions, I assume. And, you know, they will have to like figure out some of their lineup pieces, but it isn't even like they're hamstrung by their payroll and Seattle yeah. can just fr spend freely. Seattle can and should spend freely, to be mm -hmm. clear, right. but... <laughs> yeah, right. It doesn't seem like this is the changing of the guard series necessarily. Like, it could be, but it's not like, hey, we're, we're on the way up and you're on the way down and right. this is where we pass you necessarily. But it could be. It, it could, could be. be the plucky... Well, I don't think it would be that. I don't think it would be a pass, you know, like a changing of the guard, but it could be... What it could be is like the plucky upstarts are here to, you know, make your life miserable and give you the business. It could be mm -hmm. that. And then... Sure. Uh, you know, then if you win and we have established three, but they three, don't correct. have to be consecutive. They do not. Three games, 
then, you know, you're off to the races. I I personally, if I were the Mariners, would feel honored to get steamrolled by the Dodgers in the World Series. <laughs> you know, I know they have another round of American mm-hmm. League business to settle before them. But, like, if it were me, I would be like. Yeah, it would it'd be nice to win a pennant. That yeah. would be something. It would be you nice know? to win a pennant. You could put that up on your wall, say, hey, we won one of these, <laughs> like I every just, other team. <laughs> I think a lot of my emotional state as it regards the Mariners these days is like, I want to stop having my favorite baseball team be the answer to trivia, like mean mm-hmm. trivia. It can be the answer to fun trivia. That's fine. But like, it doesn't <laughs> need to be the answer to mean trivia anymore. And so... It should do stuff to continue to mitigate that. Like they're on their way, but we still we still have some work to do. All right. Well, the only series we haven't really discussed is Phillies Braves, mm. which I, I believe the first matchup between these teams since '93. It's been a while. A lot of intra division matchups in these division series rounds. So. Yeah. Phillies Braves. What can we say about Phillies Braves? I guess both teams have uh, signed some sort of extension. We talked about Strider. The Phillies have also converted their manager, Rob Thompson, from interim status to permanent to full-time, which I would say is certainly deserved, at least based on the results. So he's no longer managing for the full-time job. He got a couple years of full-time managing. So that's nice. Things really worked out for the Phillies under him. So... The actual series going into this, again, like, I guess we're sort of sounding the same note with a lot of these. It's just one team seems to be clearly better. We've talked about how well the Braves have played since a certain point in the season after a somewhat slow start. Once they got all their guys and Harris came up and people were healthier, they were just great. They were just about as good as as any team in baseball. So they are formidable. Yes. And we mentioned that Strider's still something of a question mark, and there is a, a big drop off there. So that will matter if Strider can't pitch, or if he can't pitch as much as he would have if he were healthy, or if he pitches and he isn't as effective because he hasn't pitched in a game since mid September. Well, that would certainly help the Phillies, as we noted in the last round. They've got a great top two. Their top two can go up against anyone Wheeler and Nola. That's formidable. Right. But boy, the Braves, they're just, they're good. They hit tons of homers. They're a good offensive team. They have a really pretty scary back of the bullpen. Like, they really do have just a shut down late inning bullpen, which was a big factor in their winning the World Series last year. I, I think the bullpen maybe outperformed how good everyone thought it was heading into those playoffs. Now everyone understands that. It is really good, and it's gotten better over the course of the season. They just, you know, they just picked up Rysel Iglesias, no big deal, from the Angels. Like, one of the most high-profile, expensive reliever signings of the past winter, the Angels were just like, eh, (laughs) we'll we'll just give you this guy. You can have him. It is weird. And he's been lights out for the Braves, and he's like their seventh inning guy, you know? It's like, he's not even the top guy. He's he's like the third stringer in that bullpen. So that's pretty tough. That's tough. If the Braves have a lead, and often they do because they score a lot, they will be able to protect it. So 
It's tough. I mm-hmm. hate to be a broken record about anyone can win. It's a short series. Anyone blah, blah, can blah. win, and it is yeah. a short series. It's hard not to, even if you stipulate that at the top of the podcast, which we always do, it's hard not to fall back on those crutches throughout the podcast and be like, well, but you never know. Anything can happen. And everyone's just like, yes, we know. You don't have to actually say that. That literally goes no, without we, saying. <laughs> we do have to say it, Ben, because if we don't say it one time, we will never hear the end of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's probably I'm just true. Just letting you know, like I, I haven't checked them, like I haven't read them because I've been busy doing stuff that won't make me feel angry. But like I have noticed that the number of comments on the FanGraph staff prediction post started to go up as the weekend progressed, and I imagine several <laughs> of them are calling us dumb dummies. Mm-hmm. So you know, you do have to say it, even though I said at the beginning there's there's a series and meh doesn't matter Mm -hmm. you got to say the thing and then people will pretend you didn't anyway yep so you have jansen who jansen look he could be hit at times but still pretty good but then you have colin McHugh, you have iglesias like you have some of the holdovers from last year Oof, that's just a good group. It's a good team. Like it is. It's just a good team. <laughs> as as we wade through the postmortem of the Mets season and you know managerial decisions and how you know how differently do things play out if they're more active at the trade deadline, like I do think it it bears mentioning and not just to like kind of offer some balm to to Mets fans like. That Atlanta team is just really good. Like some of it is, you know, you can quibble with how they the Mets conducted themselves at the deadline and, you know, them kind of fading down the stretch and injuries and all of that stuff. But like that Atlanta team is really good. Yep. <laughs> it's just a really good baseball team. And they yeah. came and took it. Like it was yeah, there no for the taking. Finishing but behind them or not yeah. even finishing behind them. They tied them. <laughs> they tied them. <laughs> Remember when you had tiebreakers? I miss that those. Just the tiebreaker. Yeah. Although it, I will say this is less stressful from a work perspective, but it's, it makes for less good baseball. So I wish mm-hmm. that we would bring the tiebreaker back, you know? Yes. Yeah, although in that case, at least, just because when the Braves swept the Mets in that last series, they yeah. also went one ahead of them in the season series. Yes. It, it almost felt like a tiebreaker kind that of is combined. True. You know? Yeah, no, that's definitely true. It it was, you know, it wasn't quite a 163, but it did feel like an almost equal substitute. You know, mm-hmm. it's good that they got, they had, they had to go at it yeah. right at the end there. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, is there any other hope we can offer to Phillies fans other than small sample short series? Well, I mean, we offered some, right? Which is that they're, you know, their top of of their pitching there is is very, very good. And we have seen Mm -hmm. it be effective against potent offenses before. And even though the offensive production of some of the guys that they brought in to try to bolster the you know, the Harpers and the real Mujos who they already had, like it's been kind of inconsistent at times, but like Castellanos is still capable of running into one and then like making us all very nervous that someone important has died or mm-hmm. done something naughty. So, you know, like they still have guys who can bop the, the guy who hit the second most home runs in baseball this year is famously a Philadelphia Philly, right? Yep. Yeah, Kyle Kyle Schwarber, leadoff hitter. Mm -hmm. Baseball's great. Prototypical, yeah. Yeah. Right, and 
the other thing is that the Braves strike out a ton. Yes. They had the third highest strikeout rate in the majors this year. And so if you're concerned about the Phillies defense, which you should be. You should <laughs> be. There may be fewer balls in play. So that's good. Although, as Ben Clemens noted in his preview, a lot of those balls in play may be fly balls because the Braves hit a lot of those right. too. And that is not necessarily good news for no. the Phillies because uh, the outfield defense, at least in the corners, <laughs> not so strong. So that maybe mitigates what might seem to be a slight advantage there somewhat. But fewer balls in play, fewer opportunities for Phillies defenders to screw up. So that's something. Yeah, that's something. You at least have Marsh in center and he's, you know, he is mm-hmm. capable, if not amazing. So there's that. And, you know, you have Real Muto and maybe you will get to watch like catcher steals. And then what if what if we get to watch Real Muto steal a base and throw a guy out? We'll feel so fancy, Ben. <laughs> mm-hmm. And as Ben noted in his preview, if you get a matchup with Jansen, maybe against a good lefty at this point, that would be pretty favorable for the Phillies. Yeah. Jansen, he's more susceptible to a, a platoon split now. Yes. He doesn't really throw the cutter so much right. anymore. So if you end up with Kenley facing Schwarber, Harper in the late innings, that would be a bit scary. Or or Minter, for that matter, facing Real Muto or, or Hoskins. Like There's some, some matchups there that, from a platoon perspective, might favor the Phillies. So... Yeah, it it could work. It, it could, could work. work. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, you know, I think that, look, Philly fans, Mariner fans, especially for them where you're dealing with teams that forget like advancing to a division series hadn't been in the playoffs for a while. I don't want to say like just be happy that you're here, but like I think that it's good to remember that this indicates a lot of things working over the course of a long season in a way that isn't a given when you've had a playoff drought that has been at least a decade and sometimes two. Mm-hmm. And so being present in the division series like is an accomplishment. And that's a thing that you should celebrate. That doesn't mean you have to be content with it. And I don't mean it in like a patronizing way. Like these teams beat two good teams to get into the division series. I'm I'm you know, like the the Guardians and the Padres have been in the playoffs more recently, but they also beat good teams to get here, right? Yep. But particularly for Seattle and Philly, like they beat good teams to get there. You get a home playoff game. You get to say like, we played a division series. We weren't just a wild card, you know, three gamer. You only had to win two, but you, you know, <laughs> neither of those teams played three, but they might've had to have if it had gone differently. So- you know, I I don't know. I don't quite know how to strike the right balance emotionally as a fan between wanting to appreciate what you have but not being content to settle with that and also not, you know, losing sight of regular season accomplishments in the midst of a playoff race. Like, I think it's just if everyone can take an opportunity when it presents itself over the next couple of days to be like, wow, my favorite team, assuming you are a fan of one of these teams, is playing playoff baseball and they're doing it, you know, not just in a wild card round, but in the division series. Like, it would behoove you to do that because who knows when you'll be back, you know? It yep. might not be for a while. Hopefully, yes, but that's not a given. So appreciate mm-hmm. while you have it, I think. Yeah, I'd yeah. second all that. All yeah. right. So those are the division previews, and we'll let some games go by, and then they will be discussed in yes. this space sometime later this week. And only thing I wanted to mention, non-playoff related, 
because we talked a lot about what we would do or what one should do if one were to catch a valuable home run ball, uh-huh. whether it be off the bat of Aaron Judge or, or Albert Pujols. And as we saw, the guy who caught 62, he has held on to it thus far. And I did not realize just how complicated the tax implications of are of catching one of these valuable home run balls. First of all, it's kind of cool that Baseball distributes memorabilia, game-used memorabilia, so liberally during games, more so than any major sport, right? Sure. Like, yeah. you know, you have pucks go flying into the stands at an NHL game sometimes, but but not nearly so often. Like, you're not getting balls as often as you're getting them in baseball. <laughs> People aren't ch- chucking basketballs <laughs> with great regularity no. into the stands and throwing footballs into the upper deck, you know? Like, that doesn't really happen. No. But baseball... Just liberally distribute stuff that's being used in the game one second, and then someone catches it, and they get to keep it. That's a a cool thing about baseball. (laughs) I agree. It's also cool that occasionally those balls are worth like $2 million. (laughs) And if that's the case, there's this Bloomberg article that lays out like how this would be taxed, and no one seems to know exactly. So here's one paragraph. The only IRS guidance statement addressing rare record-setting baseballs, a three-paragraph press release from 1998, has limited value for any bleacher bum hoping to capitalize on one of these five-ounce nuggets of gold. Then-Commissioner Charles Rosati lamented in the thin statement that sometimes pieces of the tax code can be as hard to understand as the infield fly rule. Asked before Judge's historic home run whether the government intended to update its views after 24 years, Treasury Department senior spokesperson Julia Krieger would only say, we don't have anything to add. Hmm. And so the way that it stands now, it's just like no one exactly knows. So there's something called the, the treasure trove provision. So again, quoting here, Taken literally, the tax code would pull any fan catching one of Judge's pricey baseballs into the so-called treasure trove regulation. The regulation holds that windfalls dropping into a taxpayer's lap must be immediately recognized as ordinary income. In the context of a million-dollar baseball, the tax bill would come to $332,955 for joint filers after the 37% top marginal rate is applied. State income taxes could send the final tax bill to $50,000 to $100,000 higher. And that's just like if you catch it immediately, you are assessed that as income, basically, the treasure trove regulation. It goes on to say the tax code also might trigger a gift tax obligation for any unsuspecting fan handing a million-dollar ball back to judge or the Yankees, an expensive proposition given the 40% top marginal rate. Then it says whether the IRS would ever apply the treasure yeah. trove analysis or the gift tax is another question. Because imagine if you you were like, oh, I'll do the nice thing and I'll hand this ball back to Aaron Judge. And then the IRS slaps you with this huge gift tax because you did that. So in 1998, when McGuire and Sosa were going for the home run record, there was a, an IRS spokesman who angered people even in Congress by saying that any fan who handed the record-setting ball back to the player would be served with an onerous gift tax bill. <laughs> and that was like part of the dispute. Someone actually said, yeah, this this could happen. But then they put that three-paragraph press release basically out to say that probably wouldn't happen. But still, interpreting tax law principles that permit a taxpayer to decline a prize with no tax consequences... The IRS said at the time no income or gift tax obligations would be triggered if the person returned the million-dollar baseball. Yeah. 
<laughs> and the commissioner said at the time, the, the IRS person, that the fan would deserve a round of applause, not a big tax bill. <laughs> so you could decline to keep your windfall and not be taxed for it. However, the IRS at the time punted on the larger tax question for those choosing to sell their newfound treasure or park it in a display case for possible sale at a future date. The agency offered little clarity, commenting the tax results may be different if the fan decided to sell the ball. So that is still somewhat in question, apparently. So it it sounds like there's no way that the IRS would demand that the person immediately pay a tax for like a million dollar asset that they just gained. So they would let that slide and that merely catching the ball does not result in taxable income for the fan. However, if the baseball is sold, so this could be characterized either as a short-term capital gain or a long-term gain. So in the context of a short-term gain, the ball would be taxed at the same rate as ordinary income. Right. So record-setting baseballs held for more than a year would be taxed at the 28% long-term rate on collectibles. However, (laughs) this is a quote in here that this would not be good publicity for the IRS. No. Why would the commissioner want to give everyone who loves the Yankees a reason to hate the IRS? I mean, I don't know that the approval rating for the IRS is, is all that high to begin with. Like, no. it, it may have bottomed out at this point. It's like, oh, I was really on board with that IRS. Just, you know, love everything they do. Just love being a, a taxpayer and participating in the taxpaying process. But this Aaron Judge Ball thing. Yeah, this that is, really this slipped it for straw. me. Yeah. <laughs> so the last thing that the kind of compromise proposition here is that the IRS would tax the baseball catcher immediately for the retail price of the baseball. (laughs) So $25, right? Hey, you just got yourself a baseball, $25. Used baseball even, maybe it depreciated. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) And then treat the increase in value as unrealized gain. Sure. So that the gain would be taxed when and if the ball is sold, but you wouldn't be hit with some huge tax bill off the bat literally right so well sure because like the value that you know what you're realizing is hypothetical until you sell it yeah right Mm -hmm. that's true like you know (laughs) i doubt that if it let's say they slapped you with a huge tax bill right away and then you sold it at auction and just kidding it's actually worth far more than what they originally assessed you at it's not like they're going to be like oh but we're good Mm -hmm. you know that tends to not be how the irs operates no Anyway, it just it seems like no one exactly knows. This doesn't come up that often. It hasn't come up in a while, really. Right. And so everyone's just kind of trying to fumble forward and hope that they come up with some sort of solution here. So interesting article. Seems like something that could be codified, although I guess it's probably but not why? the most it's not the most pressing yeah. revision to the tax codes no. that probably needs to be made. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> <But>. <laughs> not. You, fum- right. you fumble in football, Ben. You don't fumble in baseball. Oh, sure. <laughs> Sorry. I, I mess I mean, up you my sports sometimes. But yeah. it's mostly associated with football. You know. All, All right. right. Let's end with the past blast. This is episode 1915. And this past blast is also from 1915 and from Jacob Pemranke, Sabres Director of Editorial Content and Chair of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. 1915, where ballplayers go to retire is the heading for this one. Professional athletes have always known they have a limited window to earn good money in their careers. 
before 401ks existed and before Social Security was established, they didn't have many options once their playing days were over. The Sporting News reported on one creative plan for retirement in 1915. Quote, What has become of that plan to establish a home for retired ballplayers to be maintained by contributions from players still able to make good money out of the game? Out in California, Jimmy Burns, a former player and now a member of the legislature, has introduced a measure to pension ballplayers, but he wants the fans to supply the pensions. The time seems very appropriate to take up the idea of the player's home supported by funds from out of the player's pockets. It is true that in combating the greed of the mercenary magnates, they have had little time to give thought to organized effort for aid of their fellows needing care, but now that the Federal League and the Players Fraternity have compelled reforms, attention can be given to the broader things. And Jacob concludes, while Jimmy Burns' idea didn't go anywhere in 1915, players continued to push for a pension fund. The owners set one up in the 1940s, but it was underfunded. After Marvin Miller was hired by the MLB Players Association in 1966, one of his first major accomplishments was negotiating a new pension agreement between the players and owners. And yeah, pensions were a huge deal. Yeah. were like work stoppages over pensions. And prior to there being a pension, players would often, I mean, teams or players, they would stage exhibition games and and benefits maybe for older former players who had fallen on hard times. You know, there was less of a social safety net and and certainly less of a a baseball player safety net. So players today, they probably don't take it for granted. I'm sure they're quite grateful to to have that. But also maybe we take it for granted that that just exists when for a long time it did not. And you kind of had to go hand in hand or or pass the hat to try to provide for some players who could not provide for themselves. And so it took a labor movement and it took many decades to to get that to happen. Yeah. All right, everyone, please enjoy your division series responsibly. Okay, I figured I'd mention this just because we were talking about the Astros' future and their player development acumen after we recorded the Giants hired Astros assistant GM in charge of player development, Pete Patilla, as the Giants' new GM, replacing Scott Harris, whom the Tigers hired away from San Francisco. So Patilla is the new number two in San Francisco under Farhan Zaidi. Just seemed worth noting because I remember when I was working on the Astros player development chapter in the MVP machine a few years ago, it seemed like everyone I talked to sang the praises of Pete Patilla, who was not a well-known name particularly. At the time, I think he was still the director of player development. I'm not sure if he had been elevated to assistant GM by that point, but he started with the Astros in 2011 as an intern and just worked his way up and from everything I heard was pretty instrumental in putting into place their process. Everyone seemed to like and respect him, don't know him personally, can't vouch for him myself, but I remember hearing at the time people I talked to would say, oh, he's definitely going to be a GM someday and probably not in the too distant future, and that has happened now. Also possibly telling that when James Click of the Rays took over the Astros front office, he kept Pete Patilla instead of cleaning house of everyone from the Jeff Luno era. And Patilla's been up for GM jobs before, including the Giants GM job for that matter. But the Giants already have a pretty good reputation for player development. They've overhauled how they do that over the past few years. So it seems natural that they would be interested in someone who played an important part in that process for some other successful organization. No idea what, if anything, that might mean for the future of the Astros and their ability to keep developing good players. Often when someone puts a good process in place like that, others can come along and pick up right where they left off. 
But the Giants could use the help coming off a 500 season and with potentially a lot of turnover in store for this winter. So they called on someone from the Astros, which is hardly new. A lot of other organizations have poached people from the Astros in hopes of improving their own player development pipeline. I'm always interested in which organizations have people poached. Look how many people have gone on to work for other organizations after starting with the Rays. And when we talked recently on the show in a somewhat baffled way about the reports that the Astros might move on from Dusty Baker and Click also, I think I mentioned Patilla as a potential in-house replacement. Now he's no longer in-house, not in Houston's house anyway. That will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. And thanks to those of you who have decided to support the podcast on Patreon, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Tim Balfour, Casey Knapp, Nathan Kruger, Dirk Keaton, and Benji Mailings. Thanks to all of you. Patreon supporters get access to the Patreon Effectively Wild Discord group just about at 800 members. If you join now, you could be the 800th member. Or maybe not by the time you hear this, but you won't know until you join, so just do it. You don't win anything for being the 800th member. You just get to be a member, which is great. Patreon supporters also get access to monthly bonus episodes, a couple of playoff live streams coming up in the next few weeks, plus discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and more. You can contact me and Meg via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. We have a subreddit. It's at r slash Effectively Wild. Go check that out, too. Thanks, as always, to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with another episode later this week. Enjoy the playoff baseball, and we will talk to you then. Divided sky, the wind blows high. Divided sky, the wind blows high. Divided sky, the wind blows high. And then you have Craig Kimbler. Uh, Craig Kimbler. Bleh. <laughs> Craig Kimbrell. <laughs> then you have Craig Kimbrell.